Several years ago, I heard a very happily married couple who'd been married for a long time say something like this. If you can wallpaper together, your marriage will last for a long time. Sure, you've heard that as well. Now, for those of you that are unfamiliar as to why you would say that about a marriage or why you would say that about wallpapering, let me just explain it to you. Big sheets of paper with sticky glue, trying to put them up, get them straight, make all the cuts, and then pull all the bubbles out. It, it really tests the, your relationship together. So wallpaper can really test a marriage. But here's the thing. In my marriage, which isn't perfect, we don't have a problem wallpapering. Now, that doesn't mean that we have a perfect marriage, no, our problem isn't wallpaper. Our problem is moving things. And I mean anything. Part of it is maybe the height differential. Like when I'm holding something and Sarah's holding something, it tips her direction, so she's always got the heavier thing. Or our stride isn't quite the same, and so we're always just kind of off. I can hold things because I've got calluses, and thankfully my wife doesn't have calluses. Um, and so we just have conflict all the time about moving things. I even asked my wife's permission to share this illustration so that there's not conflict about that. And she gave that to me. And then she said, no, no, your list isn't, isn't uh, complete. And I said, what, what, what am I missing? She goes, you just don't communicate. And I said, yes, I do. And we started fighting about that very issue, right? So this moving thing is a problem. It's a, a challenge. So two weekends ago, I'm moving furniture out to the back patio, which Praise God, finally the sun is out in Indiana. Everyone just feels more righteous, right? So I'm moving stuff out, moving our umbrella out there. And as I'm making my way through the house from the garage to go out the back, I said, hey, honey, can you open the door for me? And here it happens. I am thinking I'm gonna walk by the door and then she's gonna open it. She thinks, for who knows what reason, that you should open the door first. And so she opened the door and I stood there, looked at her, looked at the umbrella, looked at the door, and I just shot her a look. And she shot me a look back. And we didn't even say anything and we were arguing. You know what I'm talking about? <laughs> now we resolved that fairly quickly. She asked for my forgiveness and I forgave her. And um, <laughs> no, it's not what happened. We just started laughing hilariously about what a stupid thing to get upset about. Right? So here I'm, I'm thinking the best way to move an umbrella through the house is to move by the door. But no, she's going to move the, and I just want her to know what I want before I even know that I want it. And we have this conflict that happens over and over and over when we're moving things. And we've often said something like this. Why are we fighting about this? And then the other question, where does that come from? Like, what happened, as I'm replaying that, what happened in my soul between the garage and the back door such that we're actually having an argument about this? Your issue may not be moving things, it may not be an umbrella, but I'm, I'm certain you can identify with the question, why are we fighting about this? Why are we arguing about this? Certainly this last year has shown us all kinds of conflicts, whether it's in life, with the people you love, whether it's in your friend group, whether it's in the church, whether it's in the world, we have seen an enormous amount of conflict. In fact, I, I can't think about a time where I've seen more competing agendas more 
slanderous comments, more problems that are like lose-lose. It's crazy. In the last couple of weeks, I've spent some time with a number of pastors from all over the country, multiple different denominations, and the story is the same all over. Whether it's COVID protocols, masks, no masks, in-person versus online worship, racial reconciliation, injustice, politics, which media outlet to trust, conflict is everywhere. Several years ago, I said, scratch an adult and you'll find a junior higher. It feels like we're all in junior high right now. And it's exhausting. I know more pastors who have moved up their retirements, considered leaving pastoral ministry, some who've resigned, and others who are deeply questioning their ability to continue. So James is a pastor. He's writing to a group of people who are experiencing conflict, and he wants to address the question that I'm sure you would want to have addressed, where does quarrels and fights, where do these things come from? And this morning we're gonna see three sources. First, misplaced affections. Secondly, unbridled frustrations. And three, manipulative pride. So misplaced affections, unbridled frustrations, and manipulative pride. Let's look at each of these. Number one, misplaced affections. Chapter four, verse one, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Here's this question, he asks it. What, what's happening here? Think back to my opening illustration with the umbrella. Like, like I'm asking myself that question about myself. Why is that such a big deal? I ask that when I see other conflicts taking place. And James is going to help us to consider what role our affections and our passions play in these conflicts. So he starts with this question, and what's interesting is that you might think that when he considers quarrels and fights, that James may be talking about something that's outside of the church. When you go to chapter one and he says, count it all joy, my brothers, when you encounter trials of various kinds, my guess is, is that initially when we look at that text, we think of trials like things that are outside of us, like some natural disasters, a global pandemic, or maybe um, a job loss or a health situation, like those kind of trials that are coming at us. And that wouldn't be untrue. Or maybe we think about, no, this is like persecution, like the government is turning against James and his followers, and so they're applying pressure and trying to find ways to keep them quiet or to cancel them. You might think, well, that's what's going on here. And that may be true. But in this particular moment, James isn't addressing an outside issue, he's addressing an inside issue. The outside pressure is creating internal conflict. That's why when he writes about partiality, he's speaking to the church. He's talking about their response to each other. So when James asks the question, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you, he means among people who are brothers and sisters in Christ who should know better. 
among people who are made in the image of God. That was his argument. How can you bless God and curse people who are made in God's image? You know that they're made in God's image. Why do you act this way? He talks about loving neighbors in chapter two, verses nine through 13, sins of the tongue in chapter three, verses one to five, and wisdom from above in chapters 13, chapter three, verses 13 through 18. So his focus in chapter three and chapter four is on believers. Several weeks ago, I said hardship creates loose tongues. Let me add to that. Hardship creates loose tongues about each other. That's what James is targeting. Of course, this applies to our response to people outside of the body of Christ, but chapter four is particularly focused on internal issues among people who wear the same jersey. We're supposed to be on the same team. Don't believe me? Look at chapter four and verse 11. He says, do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. So he's trying to make a distinction here about an internal issue. And these quarrels and fights, these are tension points, these are conflicts, these are arguments, these are controversies between individuals in the body of Christ or between factions within the body of Christ. Now, a few nuanced qualifications. First, you need to know that not all conflict is bad. Some Christians think that if there's any ever, uh, any disagreement, there's ever any disagreement, or if there's any controversy, then something terrible has happened. It's important to remember that much of the New Testament was written because of conflict. So we have examples of good, godly disagreements, not sinful disagreements. We have examples where division was not only necessary, but it actually was the right thing to do. The second thing you need to know is that some conflicts are supposed to be completely ignored. This is a little challenging because Paul says to Titus, avoid foolish controversies and quarrels about the law. So there's sometimes that silence is deafening. It's true. There's other times when silence is really wise. And part of the challenge is knowing when to speak and when not to speak. Third, the most significant conflicts in the church, if you look at the New Testament, come from people who used religious-sounding language to hide other motives. Just read like the book of 2 Timothy and you'll, you'll see this throughout it. Or think of the persecution of the church in the book of Acts or even the leadership that was in charge during the time of Jesus. They used religious sounding lingo or language to hide ulterior motives. Paul says this in 2 Timothy chapter three. This is the New Living Translation. They will act religious, but they will reject the power that could make them godly. Stay away from people like that. They are the kind who work their way into people's homes and win the confidence of vulnerable women who are burdened with the guilt of sin and controlled by various desires. It doesn't mean that women are the only ones who are vulnerable, that all women are vulnerable, but what he's saying is that they prey on people who have vulnerabilities. I share all of this because of the importance of what follows in this text. 
which conflicts to engage in, which ones to avoid, what's a good controversy, what's a bad controversy, that's, that is really exhausting and hard to figure out. And what James is targeting is what's underneath sinful controversy, and what's underneath is this. He says in verse one, is it not this that your passions are at war within you? So James identifies that, that these affections these misplaced affections are the problem underneath the problem. Or you can think of it this way, that we fight because of what we love. The word passion is the Greek word hedone. We get the word hedonist from it. Doug Moo, a New Testament scholar, says that this word carries the negative connotations of sinful, self-indulgent pleasure. So if you're a follower of Jesus, I just want you to understand this, that even after you come and put your faith in Jesus, the conflicts that you are wrestling with inside are because of what you want. We get involved in sinful arguments because of what we desire and what we love. And one of the strategies in using this text and helping us to navigate through all sorts of conflict is to ask ourselves this question, what is it that I want right now? What is it that I love what is it that I am willing to act in a way that I'd be embarrassed about six months from now or even a year from now, but right now in this moment, I want what I want so badly, I'm willing to do this. You see, asking yourself that question not only provides clarity, but it also helps to remind you as a Christian about your affections and that Jesus died to give you new affections, to change your heart and the orientation of your life. So sometimes it is that we love the wrong things, but often it's that we love the right things in the wrong way. Let me give you an example, a number of them. We love being appreciated and affirmed and given credit, and when we're not, we get angry and we complain. How come that department got honored? We don't get any honor. They're the ones that always get the limelight. How come that person got the recognition for that? I was actually involved in that project. And at the end of the day, what we want, if we identified it, what I want, I want to be praised. Is being affirmed wrong? No. But wanting it so badly, you're willing to suddenly be involved in murmuring and complaining? Yes. We, we love not having people tell us what to do or question our judgment. We love not being bothered by inconvenience or having to adjust our lifestyle. We love things being clear and easy and understandable. We love being comfortable, feeling safe and predictability. We love being in control and feeling like we have real choices. We love having fun and being at rest and enjoying life. And none of these things are inherently sinful. Many of them are good gifts from God, but they can also create misplaced effects where we begin to think, I must have this, and if I can't, I'm willing to do anything in order to get it. And James wants us to take a step back and ask ourselves, what is underneath that conflict? Back to the umbrella. You, you know what I wanted in that situation? When I kind of replayed that? I mean, I'm, I'm kind of mortified to tell you. You know what I want? I love myself so much that I want my wife to know what I'm thinking without me having to tell her. I just want a wife that can read my mind. Is it that hard? <laughs> is that an unreasonable expectation? Apparently it is, but not in the journey from the garage to the back porch. In that moment, I've convinced myself 
This is not only what I need and what I want, I've convinced myself this is what I deserve. Being a Christian means that our hearts have been changed by Jesus. Doesn't mean that we're perfect, but it means that I've got new desires, that, that I love my wife more than I love the six seconds that it's gonna save me to talk through how we're gonna open the door. It's awful. I love six seconds more than I love her in that moment. I don't wanna be inconvenienced, I don't wanna have to explain this again, and I really don't wanna have another conflict about moving things, because after all, she's wrong all the time on that. Being a Christian means that I'm affection aware. Here's how the old hymn writer put it. Oh, to grace, how great a debtor daily I'm constrained to be. Let thy goodness, like a fetter, bind my wandering heart to thee. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart, oh, take and seal it, seal it for thy courts above. You can wander from God's heart from the garage to the back porch because misplaced affections can take over. Secondly, unbridled frustrations. He says in verse two, you desire and you do not have, so you murder, you covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. So the, the second thing we have is unbridled frustrations. I mean, life is gonna be full with frustrations. What are frustrations? It's the emotional feeling that we feel when we begin to take action and our actions don't work. Where there's hindrance, there's resistance, where there's difficulty, and suddenly that's when we begin to escalate. That's when things become sinful. So the test of maturity is not, listen to me, it's not how you respond when you get what you want. The test of maturity is how you get when you don't get what you want. That's when it's game time. That's when it's like, look, do I really believe this or not? And so James gives two examples. You desire and you do not have, so you murder. He points out that there's this gap, the gap between what you have and what you desire, and when you can't get a hold of that thing, you're willing to do all sorts of evil things. He's talking here about the sins of envy or jealousy, kind of misplaced affections where we want what we want. Our thinking begins to go unchecked. Our actions seem to be justified because we want it really strongly. And when we're disappointed and hindered, we then escalate. And you can find all kinds of examples in the Bible of horrible things that were done in the name of envy because things were wanted and there were hindrances. Not the least of which is the crucifixion of Jesus. Here's the religious leaders who say, if we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. Notice their loves. And then nor do you understand that it's better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. So here are religious leaders out of love for their place who conspire to kill Jesus. That's how bad this is. Or Pilate, a pagan man who sees the Jews and how they're acting with Jesus, he perceived that it was out of envy that the chief priest delivered him up. Or even in Acts chapter five, the high priest regarding the persecution of the church, he rose up and all who were with him, that is the party of the Sadducees, and they were filled with jealousy. 
So just think with me for a moment at how easy it is for us to feel defensive and threatened and protective. Think how strong our wants are and what we're doing or willing to do in order to get what we want. Think of how much hate and how much pain emerges from unbridled frustration. Dr. Brent Oakwin from Faith Church in Lafayette says this, we do what we do because we want what we want. How true. Second thing, he says you covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. So we covet, we want what other people have, and when we can't have it, we fight and quarrel. It sounds like this. You see somebody with a new car, and you're like, man, I wish I had a car like that. And rather than severing it right there, what you then do is say to your friend or your spouse, yeah, they're way over their head in debt. Yeah, they can't afford that. Look at him driving away, thinks he's so cool in that car. I don't even want a car like that. That's a silly car. Silly people drive those cars. I just like my Corolla. It's got good gas mileage. And I'm a steward. I'm not going to pay that extra money for that premium gas. That's a waste of money. This is the Lord's. You know what we do, right? This is us. When underneath that is coveting. Or Take something you believe that you need, not just you want like a possession, something you need. I need to know that my job is safe. I need, I need to know, I need to know, I need to feel safe. I need to know that my job is safe. So as a result, we kind of play a little angle office politics. We kind of find out, hey, what's going on over in this area? We start playing in the dark arts that we talked about last week. It can be anything that's powerful. It can be money or titles or possessions or influence or affirmation or recognition. And when we can't grab a hold of it, it's not just that you didn't want, you can't grab a hold of it as a result, then suddenly there's, there's tension and you lash out. So it's not just that you wanted to know. It's that you wanted to know so you could know where you are in the pecking order. Because the pecking order makes you feel safe. So fighting and quarreling is just our way of battling for limited resources. And in a war that rages within our hearts, we have to continually ask ourselves, what do I want? Why do I want it? And why do I act this way? Tim Keller in The Reason for God says this, the real culture war is taking place inside our own disordered hearts, racked by inordinate desire for things that control us, that lead us to feel superior and exclude those without them, and notice this, that fail to satisfy us even when we get them. So why would James write this? Because he wants them, he wants us to be a different kind of community of people. A kind of people who, because of the grace of Christ, having changed our hearts, we are then satisfied in Jesus. I don't need a car to prove that I'm valuable. I've got an identity in Christ to prove that I'm valuable. My safety doesn't come from knowing where I'm in the pecking order. My safety at work comes from knowing that my God is the sovereign God who rules over everything. He can move the heart of a king or a boss or a company or an entire economy of a nation with a snap of his fingers. Why would I trust in information when I can trust in the sovereignty of a God who loves me? 
And when we come together, these are the truths that we remind ourselves of. We sing together, pray together, give together, live together, learn together. We're reminded that our identity is found in what we have in Jesus, not in what we don't have out in the world. And as a result, we're, we're, we're reminding each other that we can trust God's provision and not use sinful anger to try and get what we want. And rather than being frustrated, we can walk by faith. So where does sinful conflict come from? It comes from misplaced affections, it comes from unbridled frustrations, and third, it comes from manipulative pride. He says, you do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. Now, at first you might think, oh, this is about prayer, and it is sort of. Prayer is just the tip of the iceberg. It's the example that James is addressing here to deal with a more hidden issue. The problem here isn't just prayer, the issue is pride. In the first case, he says that they don't have because they don't ask. What happens in the middle of conflict, and we all do this, I do this, we're so upset that our needs aren't being met, we're so fearful because our wants aren't being fulfilled, we're so nervous about being out of control that we then lunge forward with sinful conflict and we never, ever stop to think, maybe I should talk to God about this. It is the absence of the consideration of what God has in store that instructs us about how deep our pride really is. It's not that we actively neglect, that would be prideful, but it's even worse, it's that it doesn't even come to mind because we're so angry about what other people are doing, we're so busy using the dark arts to get what we want that God's will and God's grace are far from our minds. And one of the clearest marks that sinful conflict and sinful controversy has taken hold is the absence of people who are praying. Our pride persuades us that we don't need God's help. We don't have because we don't ask. I never thought between the garage and the back porch to pray about my attitude as I was moving the umbrella, even though I knew it could be a problem. It never crossed my mind, and you know why? Because I got this. Secondly, he, say, he says, when we pray this way, we pray wrongly. He says, you ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly in order to spend it on your passions. So therefore, it affects not just if we pray, but it affects how we pray because in this moment, we aren't wanting or searching or compelled to know God's will. No, instead we're praying because we want God to fit our will. We're praying in a way in order to manipulate God. We're trying to use God, if you will, as our butler, as our delivery guy, as our mall cop, so to speak, to enforce what it is that we want to be the rules in our life. And so James is identifying, look, underneath our lives is this manipulative pride that tries to either manipulate others without thinking about God or manipulate God in order to get what we want. I mean, you see, James knows us. He knows you, he knows me. He understands what we're like. And he identifies that there's three sources that are underneath the problem of our sinful conflicts, wrong affections, unbridled frustrations, and manipulative pride. 
If you're listening to this message today and you're not yet a Christian, I'm really glad you're here. This, this text actually goes right to the heart of the way that Christians should behave. And I'm sure you know a bunch of us who don't act the way that we should. We would all say, guilty as charged. Here's the amazing thing you need to know if you're not a Christian about Christians, and that is we're still very much works in progress, embarrassingly so. We all have a lot of work to do, but my hope is that you maybe would hear this text and you'd understand what James is driving at, and this thought might come into your mind, and it's this, how in the world do you change your affections? How do you change what you love? How do you change what you're inclined toward? How, how do you change what you desire? And if that's the question that's running through your mind and heart, the good news is, is that a relationship with Jesus can actually do that. It sets you on a course, not to be sinless, but to have affections set on the right direction so that there's a new operating ethic. And you may be here today and not yet a Christian, and that just sounds crazy attractive. It is. And we'd love to introduce you to Jesus and help you take a next step in what it means to consider his claims on your life. To those of us who are Christians, I want to give you these three questions that you ought to ask yourself. When conflict begins to brew, quickly ask yourself, number one, what do I love? Number two, why am I so frustrated? And number three, where might pride be involved? I'm telling you, if you could ask yourself those questions, what do I love, why am I so frustrated, and where might pride be involved, you'll take a huge step towards slowing down the conflict in your life. It's not a surefire bullet, but those three things could at least point you the right direction to say, Jesus, help me to love the right things. Help me to trust you with this hindrance and help me to be full of you, not full of myself. Just think, of how that could have helped me with the umbrella. Back to the umbrella. What do I love? I love moving things quickly and without additional effort. Number two, why am I so frustrated? Because my wife is still unable to read my mind. And number three, where might pride be involved? Because my moving things or the way that I move things is the best. Do you see how awful that is? So what's your umbrella? Or as somebody after first service said, umbrellas. I said, I'll say that. Misplaced affections unbridled frustrations, manipulative pride. Beloved, this is where quarrels come from. And we just need to say, oh Jesus, would you help us? So help us, Jesus. Our world is so filled with conflict. Our hearts are so filled with conflict church world is so filled with conflict, we pray that you would let the light of the gospel shine through us this week as we say to you, Jesus, help us, help us. Help us to love the right things. Help us to trust you when things are hard and help us not to be so full of ourselves so often. And we pray that you would now just 
wash over us the cleansing grace of Christ that can make us have different minds as we go into this next week. So Lord Jesus, let the resurrection be the reset that reminds us who we really are and how we ought to live. You helping us by the Holy Spirit. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.